0: We'll read verses 20 through 26 of John chapter 12. Now, there were certain Greeks, which is an odd thing, by the way, that Greeks would be here in Palestine uh, wanting to see Jesus. Just keep that in mind. They are foreigners. They're like away from home. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These, therefore, came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, not the kind of answer you might expect, but here's what he said. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And Where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. should remind you of chariots of fire. He who serves me, I will honor. Eric Little held in his hand as he ran that last race. Now, here you have these Greeks. And I don't know whether it's summertime or not, but they are doing what the banner says they're supposed to do. And what I'm calling you to do and what I want to do all summer, they say, verse 23, we want to see Jesus. We want to see him. That's the heart cry of my life this summer. I want to see Jesus. I don't want to go on vacation spiritually this summer, even though I'm going to go down to Georgia for a few weeks here in July and kick back and lay down and not preach. And do nothing as much as I can do and shoot buckets and fish with my boys and probably read a few books. My aim, my aim is to see Jesus. If I don't see Jesus on vacation, it won't be recreation. And I hope you feel that way about the summer. I hope the mentality of summer is for spiritual slowdown. will be rejected as a lie. And as a very misleading counsel from somewhere other than heaven, it isn't of God. So my desire is that this banner would be true in my life and in your life. I want to see Jesus. Now, the question is, did they get to see him? What happened here? We want to see Jesus, it says in verse 21, not 23, 21. We would see Jesus. Did they see him? What do you think? Nothing was said about them in the rest of the gospel. That's it. That's all we hear about them. And Jesus gives this word of response. Did they see him or didn't they see him? And probably the answer is they did see him, but not the way they thought they would see him. They saw him in word and a word That as Jesus spoke it through Andrew and Philip was probably brought to bear on those Greeks in a way that the truth that was first spoken about Jesus became a truth for them. My deep conviction is that all self-revelation from Christ is confrontation to people. And until the self-revelation becomes a confrontation, it isn't a revelation. Until the truth that Jesus has to say about himself so that we can see him becomes truth for us and in us, we don't see it and we don't hear it. Until self-revelation becomes confrontation and lives within us, the dynamic interchange of what I mean by seeing and showing Christ doesn't happen. So here's what happens. Let's just walk through the process and try to figure out what is Jesus doing here for these Greeks and for us today. Why does he talk this way? Why didn't he just go with them? What is going on here? Verse 23. Jesus responds. So there are there are Greeks who want to see me. They want to uh, behold me. Here is a truth. Here's a truth for these Greeks. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Tell them that. In other words. I really am. Somebody to see. I am about to enter onto. A phase of existence. Through my humanity. Into glory. With my father. That if they knew what they were asking. They would really mean it. I am glorious. I am worthy. To behold. I am about to be. Glorified, but not in the way that you, my disciples, or they expect. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It is time for me to be glorified. The pathway to my glory is death like a seed. You tell the Greeks that I have a hard work to do. That I might bear fruit in their lives. That they might see me. Because if I leave the path that I'm on towards death and glory, they will never see what they want to see. And I will never bear any fruit in this world if I am to accomplish what they want me to accomplish, namely to see something great, to see something saving, to see something hopeful, to see something transforming in the world. I cannot come to them. I am on the brink of Gethsemane. I'm on the brink of Calvary. I'm on the brink of the cross. And if I don't die... This little seed called Jesus of Nazareth will be a total failure. And nobody will want to see me ever again. I will be buried. I will come to naught someday. And I will be forgotten like millions of human beings. If I am to bear fruit in those Greeks and every other nation and in my disciples, I have to go the way of dying. Now, that's the truth. He wanted to communicate to them, I believe that's the self revelation. I am glorious and I'm destined to be glorified, but I have to die if I am to accomplish my saving fruit bearing purposes in the world. Now the question becomes, what about you? What about those Greeks? Is it all me? Do I just do my thing? Do I just die? Rise, get glorified? And they see it and that's it? Or does something have to happen in those Greeks and in us today who also hear this truth that Jesus is a dying Christ and a rising Christ and a glorified Christ? How does it get brought to bear upon us this morning and upon these Greeks? I think what Jesus does in verses 25 and 26 is say... um, My dying for your salvation is also my design for your imitation. My dying for your salvation is also my design for your imitation. They say, we want to see Jesus. And we say, with our banner, with our presence, with a sermon with prayer, with song, we want to see Jesus. Do we mean it? Do we really mean it? Because if we mean it, Jesus is warning us here, if you would see me, you must be prepared to follow me. If you would see me, you must be prepared to go with me to Calvary. If you would see me, you must be prepared to become a servant. You must die with me. You must hate your life with me. You must follow me. You must serve me. Let's read verses 25 and 26. Without any break in his conversation, he's still responding to Andrew and Philip's word about the Greeks. First, he says, I want to be glorified. I'm going to be glorified. Then he says, I'm going to have to to die. And then it just flows right into what must be true of them, too. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Now, you've got to realize where he is and where he's going. This is not some comfortable little jaunt through the countryside of Galilee. He is on his way at this juncture in John's gospel to Calvary. He's on his way to the Last Supper, chapter 13, into Gethsemane. 14, 15, 16, 17, into Caiaphas and Anna's house and to the thorns and to the striking and to the sword and the nails. That's what he means when he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me to Calvary, to Gethsemane, to the grave. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, The Father will honor him. That's the truth about me. That's the truth about you. And so he's communicating to those Greeks and to us this morning. Do you really want to see me? Are you prepared to go with me? Are you prepared to be like me? I really want to show Jesus this summer. I want my life to count So that people look at me, they see the way I am, they see me at home, they see me on the street. I was walking over here this morning. This is so good. And these two guys, both of them had alcohol in their breath. They're talking to each other, not quite all together there. And I greet them and think I'm going to walk by and and they stop me. And uh, I don't know how they do this, but one said, are you a God loving man? They know me. They know me. I walked that thing a thousand times. You a God-loving man. I said, I try to be. And he said, well, can you help me out? And and uh, he wanted money. And I said, look, I don't carry money, which I don't. I don't have a dime on me right now. I said, I don't have any money, but I'll give you what I've got. Sound familiar? <laughs> I said, I, and I thought I thought I was going to get busted, you know. I mean, Ah, and he said, what's that? I said, prayer. He said, okay. Okay. I said, so what do you want? And he gave me a couple of things. So right there, his buddy's kind of 20 yards away by this time, kind of looking at this thing. And I put my hand on his shoulders, all that alcohol coming in my face, and prayed for him. I want to show Jesus this. I want to show Jesus. Now, this text is scary because it says if you want to see Jesus, you have to become so like him on the Calvary Road of Death that you show him. There are two things here that are just unmistakable. Here's number one this is hard. Number two, this is glorious. This is hard and this is glorious. Let me show you the four hard things. You see them real plain. Verse 24, number one, a grain of wheat must die. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. So you must die. Hard thing number two, verse 25, you must hate your life. He who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this World, It's a hard thing to hate your life in this world. Third hard thing, verse 26, first half of the verse. You must follow Jesus on the Calvary road. If anyone serves me, let him follow me and I'm headed to the cross right now. Fourth hard thing, you must become a table waiter, a servant. And that's hard to do in A society that prizes power and status, not lowliness and service. So it's a hard thing. Jesus knew it was hard to be a Christian. This is Christianity, folks. This is not peripheral talk about what you might do if you feel like it as a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus knew it was hard, which is why he said back in Matthew 7, was it 13, 14, 14. The gate is narrow and the way is what? Hard. That leads to life. And few there be. Few there be that find it. Christy. I got a letter. No, it wasn't a letter. It was a phone call last night. To Wayne Grudel. Wayne and I were talking. And uh, and he was talking about a, a candidate. For a church that he was thinking about forming. and uh, And he was concerned. That it all seemed to be. Grace, grace, grace. And he said, and I wasn't talking at all about this message. He said, I have the feeling that if the hard things don't get talked about, we won't become a holy people. I really believe that. This is a hard text. Die like a seed. Hate your life in this world. Get on the Calvary road behind Jesus and become a table waiter. That's hard. That's hard. Here's the second thing that's plain, however. It's glorious. It is so glorious. It is so significant. Now the word significant is a, is a big word today. Here's where it's big. Give you a little quiz here. I read this this week. Beginning January 1st, 1996, and every 1.8 seconds for the next 18 years, somebody in America will blank. Answer, turn 50. John Piper, January 11. David Livingston, January 13. And 70 million Americans for the next 18 years. They're called baby boomers. And if there's one thing baby boomers know how to do is cash in on our life stages. So we write books about them. And the books are pouring off the press about turning 50 right now. You can find them. Go anywhere. And uh, they all have one message. At least the five that I looked at have one message. You've succeeded. How do you feel about it? No good. Answer, get significant. That's the message of every book. You've spent your 50 years succeeding. You've built your church. You've built your business. You built your family, you whatever. How do you feel about the next fifteen years? More? Wanna do that again? Wanna succeed and get more bucks and live in a nicer place and drive a nicer car and have a longer vacation? Really? And all the fifty year olds, no, that's not what we want. We want to count. And all the kids in this room want to count. And all the 20-year-olds in this room want to count, and it isn't too late for the 70-year-olds to count, because this text is about what counting is, and you don't have to be 50 to discover it. You can discover it at 18 or 10. Was it last week? Yes, I sat right down there last week during that great worship time, and and Greg said, "Let's let's get in huddles if you want to." I turned around. Now, you three girls are here somewhere, I'll bet. And don't get a big head, all right? There were three, I think they're either 12 or 13-year-olds, because they all just moved into junior high, sitting right behind me there, where you're sitting. And uh, I turned around and thought, now, should I get into a huddle with these three teenage or almost teenage girls, or will that intimidate them too much to pray with the pastor? They let loose on me the most wonderful prayers. God bless you, Melissa and Laura, and I can't remember who the other one was, but but they prayed like I haven't heard adults pray in this church. So when I say ten-year-olds can find significance, I'm I'm thinking of real people who have discovered. You know, there was a prayer track at Jacobi with 4,000 people of kids who came from around the world just to pray, just to pray for those adult people. So my point is at this little juncture in the sermon is to say this text is hard and this text is about significance. For baby boomer front end people like me, I'm almost the oldest baby boomer in the world. Just 11 days short of it. We want significance as we have these big life turns. And I know the rest of you do, too. Now, let me show you. Why this is glorious here. Glory number one, verse 24. Yes, we must die. But if we die, we will bear much fruit. And that's what you want in your life. The fruit of love and the fruit of joy and the fruit of peace and righteousness and the fruit of converts. People who've been changed by your life. Who when you die, they'll come to your funeral and say, because that person was alive, I'm different. You want that. And it will happen if you die. That's why this text kicked me Saturday a week ago. Because I want to count for people. I don't want to just do sermons or do church. I want people to be changed, saved, rescued, transformed, reconciled, healed. Glory number two, verse 25 Yes, we must hate our lives in this world. Why? So that we might keep it for eternity. This is not a dead-end street here. This is not bad news. Hard news, not bad news. Can you make that distinction? Hard news, not bad news. Because the good news is, if you will hate your life in this world, which is what Jesus was doing... Jesus could have said, I'm going back to Galilee and fish for the next 40 years. That would have been loving his life in this world. Then he turned and looked at Jerusalem, filled with people who were about to shout him down, crucify him, crucify him. And he cried tears of love for those people and died for them. That's hating your life in this world. But he knew there was glory for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, And that's what we're told right here. Go ahead. Hate your life in this world. Do things that make your parents say, Why do they go overseas like that and take my grandchildren away? Why do they risk their lives and the health of their kids in Guinea? What in the world is going on here? You're you're crazy. You, You act like you're hating your life. And the answer is, well, in a way, I know that's what it looks like to you. But frankly, I'm just on a quest to gain my life. For eternity and to bear fruit and to be as significant in this world as I can possibly be. I invite you to join me, Mom. When you don't have to work anymore and you've got all that time to putz around, why don't you come on over? Glory number three, verse 26. Yes, we must follow him on the Calvary road and look at the promise we get if we do. Where I am, there shall my servant be. He said those words, those exact words, one other time. You remember where? Many of you remember where. John 14, verse 3. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come, that where I am, there you may be also. He's talking about heaven, I believe. In these verses, if you will follow me on the Calvary road, you will go to heaven. And that's where I'll be and we'll be together forever and ever. No matter what you've lost in this world, you will not lose me ever, 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 ever again. And glory number four is at the end of that verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor me. Can you fathom that promise? What would it be like to be honored by God, the maker of the universe? For God to be strolling about in heaven saying, how can I honor John? How can I honor Tim? How can I honor Mary? How can I honor Dale? How can I honor Eric? How can I honor them? Oh, I want to honor them. I love to honor people who serve myself. You talk about significance, whether you're 50 or any other age, these four things are it. We die, we hate our lives, we follow Jesus on the Calvary Road, we become servants, and we bear fruit, much fruit. We keep our lives for eternity, we join Jesus where He is in glory, and the Father honors us. Now, let me take one more little turn before we're done here. We're praying for revival. I hope you're praying for revival. I hope you're praying that we would see and show Christ so authentically, so powerfully, so forcefully, so uh, real that the world would see. To do that, we have to become like Him. To become like Him, we have to die with Him. I hope you're praying that. And I invite you to be that kind of person and to come with Jesus into the Calvary road so I've been asking myself, I did this last Sunday night, and I'm doing it with you now, and I'm going to invite you at the end of the service in a moment to do it with me. What in me must die for me to bear fruit? More fruit. What in this church must die for us to bear more fruit? It's a scary question. My plan was going to be To show you the relationship between dying and love. And the things that stand in the way of love in me and in this church. That's next Sunday now. Because what I saw at this point in the message, as I draw to a close, is this. I, I really need, at this point in the message, to connect what I've said about dying, hating our lives in this world, serving Jesus and following him. I need to connect those four things with the big picture of what it is to be a Christian. Because I have said to you, and I mean it, this is not peripheral, marginal Christianity. This is not for hundreds and thousands of ordinary Christians in the middle to look out to the fringes where the radicals do their missionary work and say, that's what this text is about. This text is about becoming a Christian and being a Christian. Now, I need to show you that. So let me make two simple observations as we close and point you to where I get them. Simple, straightforward observation number one. If you are a Christian this morning, if you're a Christian this morning, you have died. Not must die merely, but Have died decisively. Galatians 5.24 Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice the tense. Have done it. If you're a Christian this morning, that's what's happened to you. That rebellious, unbelieving, and self-centered self died. You put your faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit united you to Christ. It says in Romans 6, 5 that you were united in a death like his so that what he died, you died, and his life becomes your life. That is a decisive, once for all, finished work that God performed in your life. You are dead. That's what it means to be a Christian. Or, see it again, Colossians 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. Christian, you're dead. You're dead. You have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Don't panic because if you say, oh, wait a minute. Rebellion, unbelief, self-centered. i still got a lot of those impulses in me. Me too. Me too. But watch out. Don't let your experience interpret Scripture. Scripture says you... Are dead. You have crucified the flesh. That's a truth. We need to believe it and live by it. So hang on for a minute. Do not cancel that truth out of the Bible just because you can point to self centered experiences in your life as a believer. So can I and everybody in this room if they're honest. One other text it's the meaning of your baptism. Romans 6 4. We were buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So I conclude, first observation, I'm dead. You're dead if you're a Christian. You have died. And so what do I mean then when I asked myself last Sunday night and I've been asking myself yesterday and this morning, what must I die to? In order to bear fruit, what must we as a church die to how shall we then die? Why do I ask the question like that when the Bible so resoundingly says, John, you're dead. Bethlehem is dead. That leads to the final and second, simple, straightforward observation. The Bible says, if you are a Christian, God calls you to die daily. You're dead. And the Bible calls you to die. Now, some people can handle paradoxes and some people can't. And so the Bible sometimes talks in paradoxes and sometimes it talks in non-paradoxes for all kinds of people. The Jesus type and the John the Baptist type. We sometimes play a flute and a dirge, and sometimes we dance so that everyone will give an account to God that they had a testimony in their own language. So if you can't handle paradoxes, let me try to say it another way. What this means, and I'll show it to you from Scripture and then we'll be done. What this means is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, you were united spiritually, sometimes the word mystically is used, you were united to Jesus Christ so that what he experienced has been applied and made yours positionally. You are in Christ, and he died, and therefore you died, and you are dead because you are positionally in him. However, there's another word you could use besides the word positionally for describing the Christian life, and that is practically. Practically. You are called now to live out of this position and to become in your practice what you are in your position. And you are in your position dead to sin. And now the Bible calls you to put death into practice. And it does that by saying some paradoxical things about you. Namely, die. And you should not come back to the Bible when it says die and say, I am dead. You should come and say Because I am dead, therefore, I most certainly will die. And the dying today. Suppose, Dad, it didn't go the way you wanted it to this morning. Suppose no phone call ever comes today. You can die to anger. You can. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can die to resentment And you can overflow in love to children who forget you. You can do that. And when that death happens in you, the death to the hope that they would call, when that death happens in you, you bear witness to the fact that you died. Years ago you died. You are dead in Jesus Christ. And the power to die today to that particular challenge to your death The evidence of that real death in Jesus is whether today you put to death revenge. The real death, the finished once for all death that will not be called into question, if it's real, will be applied by a daily dying to sin and temptation. Now, here's a text from which I get that. First, I get it from Jesus Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Taking up your cross in Jesus' language means going to the electric chair. It doesn't mean merely uh, enduring hard times. It means dying. You die on a cross. Nobody felt bad feelings on a cross. They died on a cross. They screamed on a cross. Pray for Jen's Christensen. Um, I think of it just—I heard him scream on Tuesday. He was in a car accident; broke his shoulder, broke his hip, broke his ribs, his lung is collapsed, and he's in tremendous pain at Ramsey. And they tried to set him up, and he shrieked. And I heard that shriek. His daughter walked out of the room; she couldn't take it. And I said, "God, that's the way people died on the cross." Would you help Jen's right now to identify with Jesus in a way he's never before? A cross is for dying, and this text says, Jesus says, "Take it up daily, daily." So today, this afternoon, some things are going to go bad for you. Some will go good, some will go bad. But before this week is over, there's going to be some real temptations in your life that are going to be real hard. They're going to make you angry or they're going to make you be lustful or do some kind of thing that you'll be ashamed of. And at that moment, the question is, will I die to that? And that will be an evidence of did I die when I got saved? Did I die with Jesus? Here's another text. Romans 6. After verse 5, he says, You were united with Christ in a likeness like His death. After verse 6, where he says, My old self was crucified with Him. Then verse 11 says, Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Do you feel the tension? You are dead. Now, reckon yourselves dead. You are positionally in Christ. And what happened to him happened to you. You have been judged in Christ. You have been executed in Christ. It is finished in Christ. You are destined for glory in Christ. Now, reckon it to be true, Christian. Believe it. Live in it. Apply it. Make it come out in your behavior by the power of the Spirit, which is what it says in Romans 8, 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Not in your own strength. It's the spirit dwelling in you that puts to death the deeds of the body. One last verse. Colossians 3, verse 3. You've died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Verse 5. Therefore, put to death the members of your sinful body, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Can you handle this? This is the heart of the Christian life. This is why I had to stick this in here instead of talking about love, which I'm going to do next week from 1 Corinthians 13 in relation to death. I was just blown away yesterday as I was preparing for this, thinking I'm going to take First 1 Corinthians 134 4-7, and I'm going to show how death is the key to love, which is what I'm going to do next Sunday. And as I did it, I thought, but I've got to show the people that this is not marginal. This is the heart of the Christian faith. And so let me just close by beckoning you to join me in the question, what must I as a pastor die to, to bear more fruit for this church? What must I, as a father of a married son, a son away in school, and two sons at home, what must I die to as a father to become a more fruitful father for my boy? I was on the email with Lauren Billhorn yesterday in Africa, and Lauren said, Congratulations to Karsten. Don't stop praying for him, Lauren's been through a lot of tragedy and a lot of heartache in his life. And I heard what he meant. Don't assume Karsten is home free with Shelley. Pray for them. Pray for them. So what must I die to? I want to write my son, Karsten, and his new wife a letter every week for the rest of my life. I would like to die to every obstacle to that. Because I might live a year or 30 years. That's a lot of letters. A lot of schedules to be interrupted. What must I die to as a husband so that I can bear more fruit in my wife, to release my wife, so that she becomes a fruitful vine in every way? What must we as a people die to so that our church lives with fruit, endures forever, follows Jesus on the Calvary road? Would you... Let's just bow our heads now as we close. I'm going to do something real concrete. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And uh, here's what I'm going to do to let you say something to the Lord and not to anybody else. And I'm not even going to look at you. I've got my eyes closed. I want your eyes closed. Here's what I want you to do. The Lord asked this question, or I'll ask it. If God right now in this room were to make clear whatever it is in your life that is hindering fruitfulness, and you knew it was God, and not the pastor, and not your own flesh, if you knew it was God pointing out what had to die in order for you to bear more fruit, would you say yes? Would you say to God, kill it? No matter what it costs me, I submit to that dying. If, if you'd be willing, if God were to show you that, why don't you just raise your hand to God? Say, with a, with a raised hand, God's looking, then I'm not. I really mean what the pastor just said. I lift my hand to say, I pledge that if you show me something today, and if I am persuaded that it is you, I will reckon it dead, and I will submit to your crucifying in my life. Thanks.